Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter at today's episode is Cameron Brooks. The more people tell me, you just have to read this book, the less I want to read whatever it is they're recommending. I tend to assume that nothing the public embraces too wholeheartedly will ever live up to the hype. Back in 2004, all of my smart friends were urging me to read a novel that had just come out, telling me that I, of all people, was sure to love it. I dug in my heels as long as I could, but eventually I did read it, and it turned out everyone was right. That novel was Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, which went on to win the Pulitzer Prize, which is quite a feat for an unapologetically theological novel. It remains one of my favorites to this day. A decade later, in 2015, a novel was published in English translation that caused a little bit of a stir among Christians interested in literary fiction. It was called Laris by the Russian novelist Eugene Podolaskin. Learning from my earlier mistake, I didn't wait to get my copy. I bought it immediately. I started reading, and it just wasn't the same. Now, a few episodes ago, Cameron mentioned that he was reading this book, and we made a mental note to circle back and talk about it. Now we're going to do that. We're going to see if we can figure out why it was I didn't finish, why Cameron has not only finished, but read it two times now, and hopefully we'll also be able to discuss the theological questions that reading this novel has inspired in Cameron. And perhaps by the end of the conversation, we will have shed some light on the interesting and sometimes complicated relationship between theologizing and the novel. So Cameron, a few episodes back, we were talking about books for reading, and you mentioned a book that rang a bell for me, and it's a, a novel called Laris by Eugene Vodolaskin, which we couldn't quite remember the name yeah. when we brought it up before. It. And... Uh, you finished the book now. I have, yes. You've read Twice, it completely. Even. Twice, yeah. okay. <laughs> and uh, I have to admit, I, I went and dug up my copy from 2015 when the English translation first came out, and my bookmark is on page 53 of, uh, let's see... <laughs> We got 350-odd pages. So so I did not finish the book. I stopped a little bit short. And so I thought it might be interesting to talk about it from the standpoint of a book that, that you've read, uh, yeah. not just once but twice, Yes, and that I gave up on. And maybe this conversation will inspire me to go back oh, yeah. and, and read it, uh, finish it. Uh, then again, who knows? Maybe you regret having read it through the book twice. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about, some of the ideas in the book, what it's all about. But let me ask you first, why are you reading this book in the first place? Yeah, so this was actually homework for me. So I'm getting ready to head back out to Seattle this week, in fact. And I have another residency for my MFA through Seattle Pacific out there. And this is one of the texts that we're going to be talking about. Dr. Scott Cairns assigned it. This is one of his all-time favorite novels, as a matter of fact. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hear what he has to say about it. Last time at residency, we had a, it's kind of like a comedy night. And one of the things that one of the students did, they got up and read 
the worst online reviews of Loris okay. <laughs> in front of Dr. Cairns. Um, there are some pretty bad reviews out there. So some people really don't like this book. You're not alone. Uh-huh. But I happen to think it's it's worth the read. Hence, I read it twice. But yeah, it's it's fantastic. And and I have a few thoughts swirling around my mind that I wanted to hash through with you yeah. before I go out to Seattle because I need to have some stuff to, to talk about when I get out there. Well, you need some anecdotes for comedy night. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I can hopefully provide those. But okay, let me ask you first, just so that listeners are kind of up to speed with this. Um, so this novel is a Russian novel. Yes. And it's set in like the 1400s, late 1400s in Russia. Mm-hmm. And it's about this guy, Arsini. And, and what do we need to know about Arsini? Yeah. So I'll say it's a contemporary Russian novel. So this, like yeah. you said, was just written recently. But yeah, so medieval ages. Arsini is a young boy when the novel begins and is growing up kind of outside of a town, Russian town, with his grandfather. And his grandfather is something of a doctor and an herbologist. I don't know what the technical phrase is, but he, he raises his son to become a doctor essentially. And, but he has like all these natural remedies, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. It's, it's probably some medieval worldview stuff, but lots of herbs and ointments and kind of strange remedies for all kinds of physical ailments. I know in the translation, uh, the translator says, don't try this at home with all the potions and everything. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, let's get to, I'm going to try not to ruin anything for, for people that are, that are out there, but I I think that I can get to at least the end of the first section of the book, something important happens. And this is on the back of the book. So I feel I can disclose it, but Arsini's grandfather dies, Christopher, and, and then he meets, he meets somebody else. He meets kind of a, a lover. So they're falling in love when suddenly this girl, Ustina also passes away. This is a time of immense pestilence and there's plagues all over the place. And she, she actually dies giving birth to their child. And Arsini essentially feels guilty for that. He, he was the only one there they hadn't told anybody else about their relationship and he was trying to bring his son into the world. She passes away. The child passes away and essentially his life, he feels like is wrecked from that moment forward. He ends up going to this elder in their church. So elder Nick, the I believe is his name. And he's trying to figure out what am I supposed to do now? I feel I feel guilty for the death of Ustina and my son. But he also has this strange sense that she's not really gone. Like there are these weird scenes in her final hours where he's not sure if she's alive or not. And he's talking with her and he actually stays in a house with both of them. And they're kind of like decaying for days and it's it's gross but he just can't come to terms with the fact that they're they're gone so he goes to elder nicanter and he's like what am i supposed to do my life is ruined everybody is is dying and i've got some a passage here i think will set us up for this so this is elder nicanter talking to arsini about what he should do he says i will not pity you 
You are to blame for her bodily death. You are also to blame that her soul may perish. I should note that Ustina was not a believer. She was seen as kind of a pagan, whereas Arsini was a believer in God. He goes on, I should have said that beyond the grave, it is already too late to save her life, but you know that. I will not say that, because there is no already where she is now, and there is no still, and there is no time, though there is God's eternal mercy. We trust in his mercy. But mercy should be the reward for effort. The whole point is that the soul is helpless after leaving the body. It can only act in a bodily way. We are only saved, after all, in earthly life. Then Arsini replies, he says, But I took away her earthly life. The elder looked calmly at Arsini. So then, give her your own. But is it really possible for me to live instead of her? If approached from the proper perspective, yes. Love made you and Ustina united whole, which means a part of Ustina is still here. It is you. So from here, Arsini is kind of set out on his life quest. He's inspired by the elder here to live a sort of atonement for his love and for their child. And the rest of the novel is his journey to redeem her in a sense though she's dead there's a lot of interesting themes that have to do with time in this novel so that's you can already sense that in the way that they're talking about these relationships but so good so far yeah so people who love this book and force it on others uh or encourage others to read it i should say uh you know we'll often talk about like it's this window into uh let's say like Russian Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy, yeah. uh, clearly like mysticism, mm-hmm. that sense of that uh, medieval uh, Russian religious mindset, something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and I can hear even in, you know, what you're reading traces of that, but it, it's also something else too, though. Right. I mean, they're having um, visions of the future and there's, there's yeah. a lot of, uh, philosophizing that goes on throughout the book. And so it's, it's a little bit of a, um, I don't know. It's, it's maybe, is this fair to say like a, a part Dostoevsky, but also part something else, you know, kind of, yeah. Uh, more modern in its obsession with the medieval. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's been compared to a postmodern postmodern novel. Mm. I think like, you know, Canterbury tales, but, Mm-hmm. postmodern okay yeah yeah <laughs> which kind of yeah. makes sense you know it is a like a long journey of a novel so. if you imagine like the pre-modern and the postmodern sort of touching yeah. as they right they circle around that makes that makes a lot of sense yeah so one of the themes i wanted to talk with you about though is it has to do with arsini's role as this intermediary kind of doctor going forward so as i just said He's about to go on a long quest for the rest of the book where he feels like he has to make up for the death of Ustina and their son. And it's apparent that he's being depicted as a kind of a Christ figure. Mm -hmm. 
and he becomes what the Russians called a holy fool. This person who is basically an outcast from society and is, is trying to renounce himself for the sake of spiritual progress, for the sake of salvation. But in Arsini's case, he's doing all of this for the sake, again, of Ustina. And not only is he trying to imitate Christ, but it seems like he's Christ, Christ-like in, this, in the sense that he's trying to save this woman. And so before we get too, too far into the novel, I just wanted to talk about that idea of the imitation of Christ because I know that it's, it has a long history in the church. But I'm not sure how Protestants have always thought mm. about it. So, you know, this goes way back to, we're talking medieval ages. I know that there's a long history of it within the Roman Catholic Church. But what have Protestants thought about this doctrine? Yeah, I mean, I, I think first I want to put a little disclaimer and just say that um, even in a novel that's self-consciously religious and is using Christian ideas and and that sort of thing, I always think you have to keep in mind that the the novel itself as a work of art has its own way of doing things. Right. And it it may not represent or, or, or attempt to represent um, the theology of the author right. or the theology of the you know the community or the church that is involved in the story, right? That mm-hmm. that um, if we wanted to have a really good sense of let's say Russian Orthodox theology. We should probably read theology books, <laughs> yeah. not novels to get yeah. that. But, but, but I we wanna, can at least, you know, enter into it yeah. and kind of think uh, through these layers. You know, uh, one of the beauties I think of, of the arts is exactly that, that mm-hmm. uh, we can in some sense suspend our, um, you know, is this right or wrong? Yeah. And inhabit ways of thinking and kind of try them out and, and uh, see what they're for. So yeah. if you describe to me, you know, a scene where there's a character who's living a life where he can sort of redeem a dead person by proxy, uh, you know, the, the elder in me wants to say, this is bad advice, <laughs> spiritually speaking, right. that this is not, the kind of counsel I would give you in this situation. Uh, the novelist in me is like, well, I could see where, right. you know, storytelling wise, something like that could, could really have a deeper meaning, right? Yeah. That, that maybe I'm trying to say something about Christ's work. So yeah. with all that in mind, um, <laughs> let's just say, yeah, that, that you definitely encounter differences in theological outlook when you jump from, say, you know, a book like this, or you know, favorite of mine, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, and then you leap back into like a systematic theology from, you know, Old Princeton or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, and you'll you'll see like very different views of these things. So, in terms of the idea of imitating Christ, um, there is. You know, I guess like in a colloquial sense, like a common way that we talk about just following Christ's example uh, throughout the Christian tradition, and you find encouragement to do that in Scripture. But maybe the most famous 
example is Thomas Akempis's mystical classic, mm-hmm. The Imitation of Christ, mm-hmm. um, where there is controversy, I guess, or, or at least a desire for nuance, is that it's a concept that at least some people feel can be easily misunderstood as if the path of salvation is the call to imitate Christ. So, for example, in, um, let's say, uh, you know, 20th century liberalism, Christ and his work could by some be reduced to merely a moral example that we're meant to emulate. So that the whole of the Christian faith is just a call to uh, be a good person. And if you have questions about what that looks like, Jesus set the example mm-hmm. of righteousness for us. And so you can follow his example. More piously, though, we could look at the idea that our suffering is beneficial to us in terms of salvation, uh, that if we imitate Christ in his suffering, if we endure as he endured, then we are given more grace, that that we ensure our own salvation, or in the case of the scenario that you're describing for the book, perhaps even secure the salvation of others mm-hmm. through our Christ-like suffering. And so, obviously, when you when you hear that description, you can think, oh, I, yeah, that, that could be a problem <laughs> if we started thinking along those lines. Um, but I would say, generally speaking, um, the idea of imitating Christ goes hand in hand with the Christian call that we are meant to follow after him, to be conformed to his image, and that involves seeking to see things as he sees them and to do as he does. Obviously, there are limits. Um, No one is asking you to perform an atoning sacrifice that only Christ could perform. And so I think it's, it's exactly at that point that, that you start wanting to make those uh, distinctions. Yeah. Right. That yes, imitate Christ, but also recognize there are some things about Christ that cannot be imitated by us. Um, I think we can aspire to Christ like suffering endurance, but the significance of that suffering would be different than the significance of his. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a sense that Christ's sufferings, particularly on the cross, were once for all, is a phrase mm-hmm. one of my my professors used to say. You know, Christ's work was once for all and not something that any other human could ever was do. Was the author of Hebrews one of your professors? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, well, who knows? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good point. It, it reminds me of a conversation from one of my undergraduate classes, though. I will never forget this. I can I can remember nothing about the context, but we were having a class in one of my, it was a theology class discussion about what the gospel was. What is the gospel? And a girl in the class quoted Jesus when he said, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And she said, that is the gospel. And I remember pausing and just thinking, like, is that true? Hmm. Is is that the gospel? It, because it seems like it is. Like, it seems obviously yeah. true. Like, yeah. It seems obviously true 
that that is the call of the gospel. But then another part of me was thinking, wait a minute, but you can't define the gospel in terms of what we do because mm-hmm. that, that just seems legalistic. We need to define the gospel in terms of what Christ has done for us. So I don't, I mean, how would you respond to that? Well, okay. So I'm really sympathetic to that way of thinking. Um, you know, every time somebody joins grace, we give them a little bag full of books. Uh, one of the books that's in that bag is Calvin's little book on the Christian life. And, uh, it's called different things. The copy I happen to to have handy here, they've titled it A Guide to Christian Living, but it's an excerpt from Calvin's Institutes, and it's specifically talking about how to live the Christian life. But the relevant chapter here is called Living Under the Cross, and it starts with that call to take up your cross and follow me, that, that he says... Um, you know, Christ bids each of us to bear his own cross. And he talks about this idea of, you know, Christ in his life essentially blazing the trail that, that we're all meant to follow after. Um, you know, he, again, this is speaking of Christ, uh, he endured continual affliction. His entire life was a kind of perpetual cross, because it was necessary for him, as the Apostle explains, to learn obedience by the things he suffered. And then Calvin asked this question, how then can we expect our lot to be different from that to which Christ our head had to submit, especially since he submitted for our sake to set us an example in patience? So he clearly sees the work of Christ as an example for us to emulate. And... I think the 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 gospel call reduced to something like Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me, uh, at least metaphorically, works because you could find in that a call to repent, a call to believe, to follow after Christ is certainly to do both of those things. And so as a way of understanding it, I think in its simplicity, that's not it's not bad. And it has the advantage, I think, of building into it a guard against that really common mistake that we make of falling into like a sense of, you know, Jesus saved me through suffering so that I don't have to suffer. Right. And it has built into it an understanding that just as he suffered, we should expect to suffer. Like uh, we should expect to live as, as, as he does, you know? And so, so I actually like that, you know, I, I, I obviously anytime we're, we're reducing the whole of the the gospel of the kingdom down to a phrase. You know, you always want to be careful, but but I, I could think of much worse ways to think of it than that. Yeah. I, I also like it, but I, I have these hesitations deep inside of me because, because again, like I said, it seems to, I mean, I'm not going to question the fact that it's a perfectly fine way to talk about the gospel. That's how Jesus talked about the gospel. But so often when Paul, for example, talks about the gospel. It's it's in terms of what Christ has done for us. And Paul never excuses us from a response to that, but Christ's work comes first, and our work, or God's continual work of sanctification within us, is a response. I'm almost wondering if this is a distinction between 
justification and sanctification again. Well, I, you know, the reason why we so often come back to those two concepts and the way that we draw that line in, uh, in pedagogy between mm-hmm. the two um, is for exactly that reason, so that we can have some precision as we think about like who gets credit for what. And so it's very important for us as we think about our own work, our own action, you know, what we do in response to the call of the gospel to see that not as the cause of our salvation or our justification, but, but as the fruit, Mm -hmm. you know, that we usually want to be really careful about taking anything, you know, that, 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 looks like obedience and action on our part and putting it into that category sanctification. And even there we talk about sanctification as a work of the spirit, not our work. I mean, we're working, but it's him working in us. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, if you're thinking in terms of taking up your cross and following him as work that you do, then you want to think of that in terms of sanctification but then you're also going to start asking yourself, well, how is it possible for me to do this? First of all, what does it mean to, to pick up a cross? And that brings me back to the work of Christ. And, and how is it possible for me to take it up and follow him only by his grace? And so I, I think even there, the, the, the qualifiers that you want to make, you could probably extrapolate from the metaphor properly understood. But, but that last point is the key it's properly understood right that's what makes people uncomfortable in um well in 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 certainly in all artistic representations of theological ideas because (laughs) they seem so open to misinterpretation uh they're underqualified you could get the wrong idea that sort of thing and so i mean those of us who are interested in theology and interested in in approaching it artistically inevitably start asking questions like this, which, you know, I I think it makes sense that, that this is a book that you would be recommended in a creative writing program where people are interested in thinking about how to bring their theology to bear on their creative work, because it's an example of trying to do that. Mm -hmm. And, inevitably you'll find things that that you really like and other things that you're like yeah i would have done that differently (laughs) yeah oh totally well i do want to say there's something very beautiful throughout the book about arsini's devotion to ustina and his imitation of christ shown in his acts of healing for others and just his his humility throughout the book it's it's really striking and he he never seems to see it that way hmm. he's not seeing it as you know i'm i'm doing these things to be a good person or or even to save himself he's not doing it to save himself he's doing it for somebody he loves and he's taking on all this responsibility and he does seem to struggle with guilt and you know he thinks it's all his fault so he's making up for it and Nevertheless, I, th- I think it's a beautiful image of what it looks like to follow after Christ in love, not some kind of slavish legalism. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, it's worth it for that. There are some weird passages in the book. <laughs> there are passages in this book that actually suggest it's not 
necessarily a work of historical fiction even it's more like magical realism people just talk about you know elders flying over the ground or walking on water and sometimes you can see death Mm -hmm. sometimes you can throw rocks at demons it's like all these kind of weird things that are happening in this book so obviously it's not a, a theological treatise by any means but but i recommend it to people and um I think you should finish it, actually. Yeah, well, I, it, you you can think what you like. And yeah. I should uh, clarify, like, I, I didn't stop reading the book because I hated it or anything like that. Um, I think you you would probably find plenty of books on my shelves that have bookmarks at around page 50 or so. Yeah. And it probably represents distraction more than anything else <laughs> that or another box of books came in or, you know, whatever it is. But But I do remember, so a couple of things about this that I that, that didn't click for me and I'll just throw them out there and then you can bat them away and yeah. and say I'm wrong but so so one of the things for me and maybe this has to do with the translation but I did not find the the style of the writing like the voice or something particularly engaging like I, I thought it was um simplistic and thin and and so again maybe maybe on page 57 it takes a turn but but i just had a sense of like uh, i this feels a little underwhelming to me compared to what i was expecting from sort of Mm. what people were telling me this was going to be like um i guess when i think russian novel I think density, like something that is just really packed. And, and this had an airiness to it that, Hmm. that um, was like that. And and I will say also for me, just sensibility wise that you mentioned magical realism and we've been talking about mysticism and things like that. And, and that's not really the kind of thing that, that engages me as a reader of fiction. Right. So it's like, I can appreciate it. But I'm 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 going to struggle more, I think, to 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 get into it. And so, um, yeah, like I this book lived on my night table for a long time before I finally realized <laughs> it, it can go back on the shelf. Yeah, I wanted to love it. Um, I I don't remember who it was that was really kind of. Uh, impressing upon me the importance of reading it. But I, I feel like at that moment there was a real like, Oh, if you're interested in, in like a contemporary Christian sort of literary novel, you should be reading this. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, I was, and, and, and I wanted to, but um, for whatever reason <laughs> it, it, it didn't happen. So maybe, maybe this will be the thing that turns that around. I don't know. I, I I sympathize with your comments about the style of the voice. Mm. I think I got used to it sure. after a while, but I remember feeling the same way. It didn't read like, it didn't read like Dostoevsky for sure. It almost read more like Tolstoy, it, you know, a cleaner, uh, simpler, yeah. but not, not as ornate either. either. This is going to be really heretical. <laughs> um, I think I can get away with saying it because I'm, I'm just assuming that no lovers of this novel will ever hear this podcast. But uh, the book that I kept comparing this to in my mind, and maybe it's totally unfair, was uh, 
Umberto Eco's Baudolino, which is another sort of medieval kind of novel that's full of ideas Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and is also, um, you know, like, like has its postmodern flourishes and, and that sort of thing. And, and I would say that, that Umberto Eco's version of this kind of thing is much more my sort of thing. (laughs) And, um, yeah, for for what it's worth, <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's that one. maybe some inside baseball. Yeah. But for anybody who's who's sitting on a pile of historical novels, maybe that'll maybe that'll make some sense. Yeah, no, that's that makes sense. I have heard that this is a deliberately anachronistic book mm. that he's not trying to write or you know have his characters sound like people really that were speaking in the mid mid middle right. ages back then. And part of that is because he is playing with the idea of time. Again, like we said, there are some futuristic visions that some of the characters have that go way into the future and it makes no sense really, but it's deliberate. So I wonder if part of his voice is, is playing with that too. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not totally sure, but yeah. Well, I think when you boil it down, the, the thing I would want commentary listeners to understand is as a creative person who's trying to bring your own theological perspective and, and, and intuitions to bear on your work, thinking about stuff like this can really help you come to terms with that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I want to point out since it's, it's been a a while since we've touched base on this, um, you've actually had some poems published in a couple of interesting places recently. Um, yeah. I think the, the latest one, uh, Modern Reformation Magazine, yeah. right? Has done, uh, is it two poems? or There's a third one coming a third out one. Okay. at the end of the summer, the, okay. ne- the next issue too. Yeah. Great. So in addition to that, or tell us about that, but then tell us what some of the other recent ones. Yeah, yeah. So actually somebody at church told me about Modern Reformation Magazine and said, hey, they're accepting poems now. So <laughs> That was that was kind of cool. Thank but, you, church. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, Modern Reformation Magazine. They. I don't know if they've been accepting poetry for long, but they are now. Most recently, and I wasn't too familiar with the magazine. I think you've been reading them for a while, right? Way back in the day, I think when yeah. it first started, yeah. I probably have copies somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> old hard copies. Yeah. I, and you know, I was a little surprised, frankly, that they accepted the three that I sent them because they said deliberately they're looking for more formal style, Mm. traditional fixed form. And one of the ones that I sent them was in fixed form. The other two were in free verse, but they said, we'll take all three. So that was, that was wonderful. And yes, the other one, I think you mentioned on the last episode was a poem for the South Dakota state poetry society annual contest. Mm -hmm. And they do a, a contest with two categories is a landscape category and a portrait category. And I submitted for the portrait category, which is supposed to be kind of, you know, a profile of a mm-hmm. picture or of, of a person or something. And I, I sent a, a few poems in and yeah, I, I got first place on that one with my poem forbearance. That's fantastic. Which is not about a real person. So I hope that doesn't, that doesn't matter. I made it up, but yeah, I was very careful. They might revoke your prize. (laughs) I know. Yeah. It's a caricature of South Dakotans, but 
so yes, it's been, it's been great. This novel has been inspiring to me as, as a poet for sure. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's the point that, uh, you read a lot of stuff. You don't necessarily agree with everything or, or sometimes even understand the choices. Right. And, but as you think through it, it does really sharpen what you do in your own work. And sometimes, sometimes things inspire you by resonating and you're like, yeah, I, I I like this and I want to do something like this. Sometimes it works in almost the opposite way where you react against it. And, and that is, a, a productive reaction that mm-hmm. that um, you hate something and so you, you have to fix it <laughs> yeah. you know and you put mm-hmm. put your own version out there in the world but it's uh, one of the things I think that people may not understand about the teaching of writing is that a lot of the the way writing is taught is through reading mm-hmm. you know you're reading and you're analyzing and discussing and trying to figure out texts and how they work at the same time that you're also doing the work yourself and producing your own work. So yeah, I mean, this has been helpful. I think I'm interested in the book and interested in our different reactions to it and kind of looking forward to hearing how the discussion goes. When you get back, you can let us know if, if it opened your eyes or if, if you uh, have, changed your view of anything after kind of digging into it with the group yeah looking forward to it thanks for this conversation yeah Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.